News organizations have done a good job of breaking down science in a lot of ways, but not really at the local level. You know, if, if you hear things like Antarctic ice shelves are melting or, or um, Amazon rainforests are, are decreasing, it just feels very far away. When you hear things like, oh, Midland Beach, Oakwood Beach are going to be affected by this, you know those places, you, you know Highland Boulevard, and I think that's really something that I feel is uh, important to take away from this. By the year 2100, Staten Island as we know it could be a thing of the past, with projections indicating that rising sea levels and increased heat could alter our coast and fundamentally change life on the borough. Welcome to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene, a podcast bringing you an inside look at the biggest stories on Staten Island with the reporters who cover them. I'm your host, Eric Bascom, and this week I'm joined by Staten Island Advance science and breaking news reporter Joseph Ostapiuk to discuss our new series, Staten Island 2100, which explores the potential impacts of climate change on our borough over the next century. Thanks for joining me today, Joe. You know, before we dive in, I know you're a huge New York Rangers fan. They made quite the run in the NHL playoffs this year before finally falling to the two-time defending champ Tampa Bay Lightning in the Eastern Conference Finals. So what was that playoff run like for you, and, and how are you feeling now going into next season? It hit me straight in the gut to start, Eric. Uh, <laughs> it was a great run. It was good to be back. I mean, they hadn't been back at that level since you know, 2014, 2015. So it was good to see competitive hockey again, but it's always tough to get close and not finish, you know. Yeah, absolutely. But I do think that there's, you know, some some bright spots looking forward. It's a for pretty sure. it's a pretty young team. Yeah. They, they probably overperformed a bit this year yeah, by, by a sure. lot of people's expectations. So I think moving forward, there's at least cause for optimism. It doesn't feel like a letdown as much as mm-hmm. they were almost playing over their heads a bit, right? Yeah, next year it'll feel a lot better. It still stings a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's get down to why we have you on today. I've done enough of uh, teasing you a little bit about the Rangers here. So so over the past few weeks, we've published the first four articles in this new series you've been working on called Staten Island 2100. Can you give our listeners a brief overview of the project and what prompted you to really focus in on this topic? Mm, yeah, so in, in about August of 2021, the International Pan- Panel of Climate Change, the United Nations body, they released their first report, which basically went into the science behind climate change and what's causing changes both now and then and in the future. And, and it just piqued my interest, to be honest. And I, I saw it as something that was, you know, something that was obviously very important. But then also, obviously, living on Staten Island, I thought about how we can make this local. How, how can we make this something that, you know, my neighbors care about? How can we make this something that Staten Islanders think about in their day-to-day lives? So that's that's really how the project started. It started out as just that idea. I had no idea it was going to be at this scale. But that's really what happened, you know, to, to, to start it. And then now the project, as you mentioned, four pieces have published, um, two pieces on sort of an intro to what's behind this. And then my colleague, Paul Liotta, who's working with me on the project, did a first person piece about his life in Midland Beach and the history of storms, you know, on Staten Island. And then most recently, Paul and I worked together on a project discussing the borough's vital institutions, things like infrastructure, things like the borough's hospital, what's being done to protect those institutions against climate change. Yeah, and it, like you mentioned, it's a very multifaceted project at this point. We've covered a lot, you're covering a lot of bases uh, with this, and we're going to kind of touch on each of those as we go. But first, a major part of the project, the first two articles, I think specifically, deals with kind of analyzing and interpreting some of this pretty complex climate data and projections. So 
Tell us a little bit about what that process was like and, and you know, what it's like and how difficult it can be sometimes to try and condense all that information and present it in a way that's really palatable to the readers. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, th these reports, they're dense. They're hundreds of pages long. And they don't really give you nice, easy tidbits to take away, like, this is your headline. Uh, um, it's just not really in the nature of those type of those types of literature. Uh, even the summaries for the reports are long. So <laughs> so that's, that's a challenge to begin with. But I, I find the explaining part easier. So once I really feel like I understand what's, you know, what I've read, I, I feel the next part is far, far easier. The, the preparation is is far more difficult for stuff like this. I honestly feel like my naivete in these things too actually helps because, I mean, our, our readers aren't going to know deep, no they're not going to have deep knowledge of the, the science behind climate change. And I think that as I'm learning, I'm able to hopefully explain things in a way that helps people who are also learning things. Because I think people do want to learn. I, I really do. I, I feel like people are interested in this in, in one way or another. And they want to know how it's going to affect their lives. So I think that that's all, you know, helpful in terms of how I approach the project. You know, you, you mentioned it, but while they're dense, you know, the, the reports are, are somewhat difficult to read. I think they're important. I, I think that, you know, news organizations have done a good job of breaking down science in a lot of ways, but not really at the local level. I feel like that's something that's some sometimes makes people feel disconnected from this. You know, if, if you hear things like Antarctic ice shelves are melting or or um, Amazon rainforests are are decreasing, it just feels very far away. But when you feel things mm -hmm. like when you hear things like, oh Midland Beach, Oakwood Beach are gonna be affected by this, you know those places. You you know Highland Boulevard. And I think that's really something that I feel is uh, important to take away from this. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we're going to talk about later on a little bit about the importance of localizing that and mm -hmm. speaking with some of the people in the neighborhoods and mm -hmm. the piece that Paul had done, as you had mentioned. But first, I want to talk about these really cool videos and, and graphics that are mm -hmm. a part of this project as well. Um, so we have some stuff showing kind of rising sea level projections for and how that could affect different neighborhoods along the East Coast, uh, the East Shore, rather, of Staten Island. And so, you know, First, why do you think it's so important for us to kind of offer these types of visual elements to accompany the writing? And then also, what was the process like of creating these? Because these are things that we haven't necessarily used here at the at the advance in the past. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, in my mind, visuals are essential when it comes to talking about climate change. We hear terms like SLR, sea level rise and extreme rainfall, but the visual of what that could look like coupled with the active memory that a lot of Staten Islanders have of things like Hurricane Sandy and even more recently, you know, Ida um, and SIES. I mean, those are things that makes the words mean a lot more. So we worked with designers at our parent company, uh, Advance Local, to look over federal projections that were informed by that IPCC report I mentioned. And we wanted to create specific graphics uh, for the most affected areas of our borough. The ones you mentioned and our readers can see is... Uh, specifically related to the east shore of, of Staten Island. So so to get to them, Paul and Shane DeMeo and I, we all went out to the east shore one day and spent a few hours there flying drones up in the air and getting these uh, sections of the borough that we later put overlay graphics on, which I think is a really, really cool effect on it. It makes people see like, oh, this is 
this is Miller Field and this is what Miller Field could be and this is how these areas could be affected. Yeah, and so if you're listening right now and you haven't checked out those videos yet, I would strongly encourage you to because as you said, it really does a great job of driving home the point of how dire the situation could become moving forward. The idea of seeing the water rise, even if it is a, a graphical representation <laughs> of it, uh, it, it is a little uh, jarring for sure. Uh, I know the first time I looked at it, I was like, wow, that would be uh, a whole lot different than it is right now. So, yeah. you know, speaking of that, and the, can you just talk to us a little bit about how these rising sea levels along the, the East Shore and other parts of Staten Island and even some other aspects of climate change. I know you've talk, uh, touched on extreme heat as well, how those could impact the borough in the coming years. Sure. So I'll start with sea level rise. I think that's the most pressing one. Basically, the way that sea level rise works is as global emissions increase, you know, emissions from things like cars, buildings are a really big emitter, and then obviously companies and so on. Uh, it increases the the mean global temperature, the average temperature across across the entire borough. Right now, we're at, we're at about one point one degrees celsius warmer than we were in the industrial age um, so that's where we're at now scientists want to limit warming to 1.5 degrees that's what a lot mm -hmm. of countries have agreed to do um, but we're, we're falling short on that a little bit so these projections take a scenario where we keep things to 1.5 keep things to 2 2.5 and 3 and so on 3 would be i mean catastrophic levels of of, of issues even 1.5 degrees has its has its own set of issues and we have some issues baked in now so that's that's how sea level rise works extreme rainfall is is pretty simple we even see it in in the winter too with, with snow as the atmosphere is warmer it, it retains more moisture and that means that when storms come when we see things like we did with Ida last year um, and, and intense amounts of rainfall fall and it can overwhelm sewer systems like it did ours last year and then obviously worse heat effects whereas we're seeing a few you know a handful of days over 100 degrees now you know companies and also um like, like companies like con edison and uh experts are, are all projecting we're, we're going to see three four five fold that amount per year and that i mean heat's the deadliest aspect of climate change more people die of heat than flooding and and drowning um so that the, those are the, basically the effects of, of climate change. But it really is important that there is time to make changes. While where we're going to see some effects, how bad it gets is entirely up to how the, the world responds to the issue. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to get to that eventually. <laughs> we'll be right back. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is a powerful multi-part podcast about Sean Sinisey a victim of former Penn State football coach Jerry Sandusky, who was arrested 10 years ago for numerous child sexual abuse charges. The podcast series is written and hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Sarah Gannam, who takes listeners into the world of addiction rehabilitation, where society can be quick to celebrate the consequences for abusers while not addressing the needs of their victims. Subscribe now to The Mayor of Maple Avenue wherever you get your podcasts. Um... But first, I know me and you have talked about this before, and we touched on it a little bit at the beginning of the podcast, but I just want to take a few minutes to discuss the importance of, of really localizing these stories, because as you mentioned, oftentimes with these more complex global issues, it's harder to get people to kind of care about it when it doesn't feel as though it, they can do much about it, or it's not affecting them as directly as, it, as other things might. But when you put things in the context of, of how it will affect Staten Island and how it will affect them personally, sometimes it prompts people to get a little more involved, care a little more about the topic. So 
talk to me about how you've been trying to localize this topic, some of the, the strategies that you've taken there, and also some of the conversations that you've included in the series from Staten Islanders who are already seeing and feeling the effects of climate change, severe flooding. Mm-hmm, for sure. So, I mean, the where I started for this project, and I'm not sure if it's the perfect way to start, but I started by talking to experts who just knew more about it than I did. And there are actually a lot of experts that know Staten Island, which is a tough thing because experts may know about climate change, but they may not know here. But we really do have scientists here that were extremely helpful in the, the early stages of this project that were able to to give me some perspective on it. And, and you know, I, from there, I just thought about, like, who's the next stakeholders in this? Who, who are the people that this affects? And it's really my neighbors. So we did some call outs, uh, basically asking for residents who were concerned about this. And I had spoken to residents in, in other capacities before, and I ended up talking to them as well. Yolanda Rose is a Port Richmond resident. That storm in July was the first time water came over the sidewalk. Water came up the driveway and was about four or six inches deep in between our house. And we had never seen that before. And I just didn't expect it to come into the house. And it wasn't until it started coming under the basement windows and under our side door, running into the basement from outside, that we started trying to grab stuff from the basement. And the water rose so quickly. Within half an hour of it coming under the door, Mm -hmm. there was five feet of water in the basement. You know, it's a it, it's a real and, and and present threat. But you know, I was able to talk to people who didn't just live on the East Shore and who weren't just affected by Sandy. People who lived in in Port Richmond and and saw flooding in ways they haven't seen before after Ida hit. And you know, now they're waking up to a, to a new reality of of well, what's going to happen to my house if I see a storm like this every year, every two years? You know, like I, I had a woman who I spoke to who you know she didn't even finish fixing her basement from the last storm and then another storm came and, and hit her and, and she had never seen flooding in over a decade of living there. So those are things that, uh, that's really how I approached it. And those are some of the conversations I had, but, you know, by s- focusing on these smaller areas and going into these more granular details, my, 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 my goal is to not make climate change feel like it was something that was happening, happening in Antarctica. It, you know, it's, it's here too. And it's going to affect Highland Boulevard. It's going to affect Richmond Terrace. It's going to affect South Avenue, which is, not far from us right here. So, I mean, that's, that, that was really the, the goal and that's, that's how I got there. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned this at the beginning of uh, your, your last point, but you know, you spoke to tons of experts on this, right. And mm-hmm. I think our readers often wonder kind of where do we find these sources? How do we choose who to include in the articles? What is that, that process like? So can you kind of walk us through that? What was it like looking for sources for this series in particular? And, and how do you decide who to reach out to? Which groups or organizations should be included? That kind of stuff. I mean, in the early stages, I wasn't even speaking to experts with the mindset of um, this is going to be in the story. It was I was speaking to experts because I wanted to know where I had to go next. Mm-hmm. Um, I had spoken to experts on previous stories that I've covered for climate change and other things prior to this series, which helped. Um, so I started there and then, you know, I I would speak to one and they would be like, hey, you should talk to this person. And, and I mean, I mean, you know, there's sometimes that happens where they're like, this is the guy you should talk to. This is the this is the, the woman you should talk to. And I, I, I jumped around from one expert to the other expert to the other expert. And I sort of went down the rabbit hole with that. And then I and then when I step back, I'd look and say, well, where are we in this series? Where where are my gaps of knowledge? And then I would go look for someone who who was basically able to fill that. And, you know, that's, that's, I mean, 
when we tackle stories sometimes it's like okay i have this piece but i'm a little confused on this part so the reader is definitely going to be confused yeah so, so that's that's basically how i approached it and it was it was sort of simple i i think but i think that um i was able to fill my knowledge and then hopefully create a more comprehensive piece yeah absolutely and i think that that's a great point and that sometimes you'll be talking to someone and you'll get some really great stuff but then you leave that conversation with even more questions and it's not even questions necessarily that that person uh, needs to answer Mm -hmm. but it's just like oh but what about this aspect Mm -hmm. of it so then you go okay well let me find someone who might have more expertise in that specific subject and then it's kind of just a a chain reaction in a sense so Mm -hmm. um you know after digging through all these reports and talking to all of these experts what kind of efforts do you think will need to be taken locally, nationally, globally to, to kind of address some of these issues before it's too late? And, and what kind of work is already planned or, or underway on Staten Island specifically? Globally is tough. I mean, globally, the biggest thing is, is that we have to sort of walk and chew gum at the, the same time with this. We have to both reduce emissions pretty drastically and pretty quickly while also creating mitigation strategies that help us live with the effects, the effects that we're going to have. So, I mean, focusing locally, the good thing is that we do have some things underway already and some things that are wildly successful. I mean, the seawall is, is the big one. I mean, the seawall where how many years, removed, 10 years removed from Sandy now? Yeah. And we're still waiting for the seawall. That's something that my colleague Paul Liotta has been following, and it looks like there's some good news on that front. But that is a, a major, major infrastructure project that's going to be important to protecting the East Shore. Um, outside of that, I mean, we've had... You know, all the experts I spoke to, you know, they, they would bring it up to me, the blue belt system that we have on the East Shore and the South Shore. I mean, it's so incredibly powerful and effective at reducing pressure on our sewer system. And I spoke to experts who are looking to hopefully increase that that program and expand it to other parts of the borough too because it's just so powerful everyone always talks about mixing things like green infrastructure which is a a term that you're going to see throughout the series which basically just means things that aren't steel and stone and you know things like our sewer system Mm -hmm. or things like that it's things that use the natural environment to sort of supplement and help those things and the blue belt's the best example of that it takes runoff and holds massive 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 amounts of water that doesn't overwhelm our sewer system and Paul, you know, Paul Leota, he lives in an area around the Blue Belt, and he says that he's seen absolute changes since it's been uh, installed. So that things like that are are needed, but if you don't plan on a government-wide level to attack the issue itself, um, there really isn't any level of green infrastructure or even gray infrastructure that's going to protect everybody that's just that's just the reality right and you know we've mentioned his name a few times Mm -hmm. at this point so let's really dig in you've been working very closely uh on this project with our colleague paul liotta who's also been on the podcast before talking Mm -hmm. about some of this stuff i think that most people probably assume that reporters are often kind of off doing their own thing working one-on-one just Mm -hmm. uh so what's it like working collaboratively with someone else on a major project like this and what goes into that and how's it going so far it's been terrific to work with with Paul. I mean, he, he's someone who I admire and respect so much. I mean, uh, he's been a mentor for me since I've been here. He's been invaluable to my experience at the advance. He's he showed me more of the ropes of journalism than I think he even knows. Uh, so, so, so that was fun. And, and once I heard that he was interested in it, I mean, it was a no brainer to sort of to go with it. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing was for me too the ability to bounce ideas off somebody. Once I saw that. You know, the, our, my editor and the 
the paper was interested in, in really exploring this, it became a very, very big task. You know, when I initially pitched this, it was a, it was a single story. <laughs> it became much, much more, and, the, and therefore I, I was very, very comfortable with saying I needed help on it. And and Paul has such a deep knowledge of the East Shore. You'll see that in his piece uh, about the history there, and then also the the seawall and a lot of the mitigation efforts there. I mean, he's someone who who lived it, but he's also someone who's just so perceptive and smart about it. So it, it was it's been really really fun to bounce ideas off of him and the infrastructure story that Paul and I worked on that that came out. Um, it was it was fun because you're right. I mean, the readers would be right if they assumed that we mostly do stuff alone because we do. Right. But working with him, I actually I, I sat you know here with him and we were able to really work through the story. How do we want to approach it? What are the things we want to talk about? What are the things we want to include? And that was a that was a great experience. And I think the story sort of shows for that. It was you know sort of meeting of the minds, and we were able to do that. But. Yeah, big, big projects are daunting, but having great teammates on it sort of helps out a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And it helps with some of the the legwork. Like you were saying, you guys went out, you flew the drones, you, yes. you got some coverage there. I know for his first person, you guys went and dug through some of our archives, right? Yeah, yeah, we were, yeah we were actually at the St. George Library one day. Um, it was just like a Friday morning. And Paul was really doing it for his story, that, that look back piece. And I was like, I just want to be there. I just want to see it. And we, you know, we, we went to the St. George Library. Actually, we, we went and they, they told us, like, thank God you guys came here because we're, like, closing for renovations for, like, weeks. So that would have been a real oh, issue. Wow. Yeah, so good time. Yeah, so we, uh, we went through microfilm with this super old machine mm-hmm. that we, like, really didn't even know how to use. And <laughs> um, just, like, looked through papers from, you know, from decades ago, from the 40s. And, and you know, really looked at how did we cover those storms? What, what were the storms? There's, there's not always great, you know, local info on these storms, but we, we were, the we are the local We info. are, yes. So, so we were able to look at that and, and, and it was a really enlightening experience. And it also shed some perspective on, you know, how long Staten Island has been dealing with these issues and, you know, and how in a lot of ways it's it's been worsening and going to continue to worsen for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And before we go, without spoiling too much, can you give our listeners a little taste of what's to come in the series and and when they'll be able to find the newest articles? Sure. So at this point, we have just released part four and part five, um, Paul will be handling. He'll be, I'll just give a little tease that he'll be focused on development uh, on Staten Island. And then then part six is going to be, I'll be handling, it's going to be a little bit of a, a step back from the from the nitty gritty and more of a look at the future and what things that can be done and what things experts think need to be done to, to protect us. A lot of people sometimes get jaded about, you know, like, well, what are we going to do? You know, hands <laughs> up in the air. So this is something that these are some suggestions, some ideas that are doable, it won't take, you know, five decades to complete and, you know, can really help people on, on a day-to-day basis. So those are the, those are the last two pieces that we're, we're going to have coming out. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Joe. It was great chatting with you as always, and I look forward to reading the rest of the series. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Staten Island Advances from the scene. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit SILive.com for the latest on all these stories and more. Thank you for supporting local journalism.